Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For many years, France had been protective about the clubs that it belongs to, resisting the expansion of NATO and the European Union. But that view has quietly changed since the invasion of Ukraine, and that could change the face of European security. And you've seen footage of assembly lines with cars moving along encountering successive teams of technicians. Now reverse that film in your mind. We look at what modern scrapyards are becoming. Efficient, money-making disassembly lines. But first... In the early 1980s, so the story goes, a KGB officer would stand outside Britain's Ministry of Defense in London each night, counting how many lights were on. A well-staffed building, the logic went, might signify that the West was preparing a nuclear attack. This kind of low-tech Cold War tactic might sound ludicrous, and history shows that governments are surprisingly poor at predicting big military moves. Even in the more recent past, there were plenty of warning signs about a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But no one seemed certain whether, and no one knew when, it might happen. As Moscow continues to build up its military hardware and forces on Ukraine's border, some Western intelligence officials say Kiev could be a target. From the beginning of this crisis, I have been absolutely clear and consistent. The United States is prepared no matter what happens. The truth that we have different information and now the best friend for enemies. Clearly the skill of predicting conflict is more art than science, but it might be put on a firmer footing ahead of a confrontation further to the east. So the concern, of course, is that China will invade Taiwan. President Xi Jinping has vowed to reunify Taiwan with China. Joe Biden, America's president, has several times said that the U.S. would defend the island if China invaded, which isn't actually America's policy. Rosie Bloor is an international China correspondent for The Economist. Tensions have been high. And, of course, if this was going to happen, if China actually wanted to invade Taiwan, it would be a huge maritime attack. And so on the notion of predicting such a thing, how do we do it? In the case of Ukraine, we saw that there was this huge buildup of Russian troops. And those are obviously the things that you would see right before any kind of invasion. Anywhere you'd see a massing of troops, munitions, machines, all the goods that troops would need would all go in the direction of the coast close to where Taiwan is. But the idea is always to try and work out much earlier 
And so the thing that I've been looking at is the movement of markets. China is particularly useful if you're looking at the movement of markets because it's much more dependent on imports for key commodities than other big countries. And also because trading in those commodities, in energy and food and things, is all done by state-owned entities, what happens in the markets is essentially a mirror of the government's desire. So when you say watching the movements of markets, what exactly do you mean? So if China was considering waging war, it would need to make sure it had enough of three broad categories of goods, energy, food and minerals. And if you think about something like energy, which is the most obvious, China relies on oil imports for about 70% of what it consumes. And so they would need to ration the use of oil. That's one thing you might see. And then the other is that they would be likely to import more. And oil is particularly useful because you really need to sort it out before you start. You need it for everything to do with the military machine. You might also see stockpiling of gas. You might see firing up of coal-fired power plants again. So presumably we would have seen that kind of energy stockpiling or those kinds of changes in in war times or ahead of war times before. It's difficult to see historical examples here of the fuel bit of the equation. Most useful one is also the most recent one, which is just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was tons of intelligence suggesting that there might be a conflict. And during the six months leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and obviously we didn't quite know when it was going to happen, the Chinese government massively increased its purchase of gas in that time. So Chinese state-owned companies bought more than 91% of all gas term deals bought worldwide. And by term deals, I mean contracts that were spanning sort of four years or longer. So to give you a kind of baseline of what we would normally see, China would buy less than half of all gas. It was suddenly buying 91%. So almost all of those were bought by Chinese state-owned companies. And not just that, they were often bought by companies that had never bought gas before. And the really interesting thing, I think, is they were all bought in quite small amounts so that no one deal would actually raise eyebrows. No one would be like, huh, why are they buying a huge amount of gas? So they've got different names, different companies. But you've looked at it in the whole, you see something quite different happening, which is suddenly China buying tons of gas. And not just buying tons of gas, buying it when it was really, really expensive. Because what Russia had done is actually reduced the amount of gas in the market. So prices were super high. There wasn't much gas around, which was making prices higher. And yet China was still buying all of the gas that it could. But in that sense, the the, the change in energy buying and stockpiling is just a sign perhaps that China expects a conflict somewhere, not necessarily to be the aggressor in a conflict. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, with all of these indicators, I should say, it's not like we can say, oh, you know, wheat prices have gone up X amount and they're still buying, therefore they're going to war. It's one part of a whole picture. Yes, it does indeed show not that they were planning to go into a conflict, but that a conflict was happening somewhere. But what it shows is that if they are expecting conditions to change, they are prepared to stockpile even when economically it doesn't make sense and there wasn't a massive increase in demand. So it's a sign that their response to changing circumstances is to stockpile. You're absolutely right. It doesn't mean that they are going to war. 
So in a sense, we're, we're putting together a kind of uh, jigsaw puzzle of, of indicators. At the mention of wheat, you, you had also mentioned food as a, as a market to watch. What would you be looking for there? Right. So food is really interesting because China has long had this desire to be self-sufficient in food. And it used to be, in fact. But about 20 years ago, China stopped being self-sufficient. And by 2020, it produced only 77% of what it eats. Now, that sounds like a lot of it, a lot of the food, because it's three quarters. And it always has to rely on imports. And so the Chinese government increased its stockpiles, rice and wheat. It started a pork stockpile. These are things that have to be managed. But they have got ongoing supplies of particular goods. But if China is stockpiling already, what would you consider an indicator that, that something's about to change? Great question. And I should stress a further opaqueness to this whole thing is that we don't know exactly how much they have stockpiled. So it's really hard to work out a baseline. But one of the key items that you would expect to see a sharp increase in would be soybeans, which might sound quite random. Why would you count soybeans? So the population of China does not eat many soybeans, but its pigs do. And pigs are huge in China, if you didn't already know that. So China is unusually dependent on pork. 60% of the meat consumed in China is pork. And these pigs have to eat something and they are almost entirely fed on imported soybeans, so 100 million tonnes. And then you would also see other things like baby milk formula. They have no baby milk formula industry. You would obviously see other staples, wheat, corn, etc., And then they would also probably stop exporting any of the things that they export at the moment in terms of agricultural produce. Okay, so that's the the energy indicators, the food indicators. You mentioned also minerals. What are we looking for there? So minerals are really hard to keep track of because demand is changing very fast. And it's changing because we consume different things, but it's also changing because the technology is changing. But there are a particular bundle of minerals that you see that China would use for its own military technology, munitions, vehicles, that sort of thing. And those are the ones that you would see stockpiling of. So beryllium, which is used in weapons, military surveillance, military reconnaissance systems, that's almost entirely found in America. That would be certainly one. There are others like tantalum that are mined in Africa. So these are hard to measure against consumption because it's changing so fast. But if you have a bundle of minerals that you're keeping an eye on and you see unexpected behavior, that would be another thing to look out for. You say in all these cases that there is some opacity, that these are noisy measures. I mean, what else might you look at if you had those three things already under the microscope? So the other thing is the financial system. And the financial system, as with the economy, there have already been a lot of steps that the government has made to try and improve the system's resilience. There are lots of kind of really weird techie things that most of us don't think about right now. Like whenever you make a cross-border payment, by and large, you use a Western financial institution, you use a Western system. The Chinese have their own. They mostly use the Western one still, but they would be trying to use the Chinese one much more. They might shift their foreign exchange reserves out of dollars and euros into their own currency, into gold, which is harder to sequester. You would start to see capital flight from the elite. They would be trying to get their money out. And you would probably see the Chinese government start to strengthen capital control. So try and stop the money going out. And then very short term, by which time you would have seen troop movements, etc. You'd get things like freezing of foreign assets in China, that kind of thing. 
Okay, so with all of these indicators in hand, um, you you are my great prognosticator of a, a potential Taiwan invasion. Is one coming? Well, the good news is no, it's not. I mean, not right now anyway. That doesn't mean it couldn't. China has one of the biggest militaries in the world. If provoked, such as if a new Taiwan president declared independence, for example, it might do it anyway. It certainly could. It has the strength. It's got a lot of experience at doing exercises with different bits of its armed forces. So it could. But in terms of its broad strategy, does it have a plan, a timeline, a mission that it's going to anytime soon? No, I would say it doesn't. Well, I will check back in at regular intervals. For now, Rosie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Soon after Russia invaded Ukraine, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz proclaimed a Zeitenwende, or historic turning point for his country. He promised to invest heavily in defense, for decades something of a taboo for Germany. But the war in Ukraine hasn't been an opportunity for a turning point only for that country. Quietly next door, France has also been changing its tune. Having previously been skeptical of widening membership of the clubs it belongs to, France is now championing Ukraine's entry into NATO and favors spreading the EU's borders to the east and south. That shifting attitude from a heavy hitter like France has huge implications for European security. France has always been concerned about the balance of power in Europe between Russia and the West. Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. And specifically when it comes to NATO and to the enlargement of the European Union. But that really does seem now to be changing. Well, let's start with the attitudes as they were before. What has the history looked like as far as NATO and, and France are concerned? Well, if you take NATO, you know, France has always had a semi-detached relationship. Don't forget that Charles de Gaulle pulled France out of NATO's integrated military command in 1966. And as recently as 2019, President Macron told The Economist when we interviewed him that NATO was experiencing, quote, brain death. Now, when it comes to enlargement, France has blocked Ukraine's path to NATO membership before. That was in 2008, along with Germany at the time. And it was much criticised recently by President Zelensky as being far too cautious about NATO and its relationship to Russia and France being too concerned about not provoking Russia at that time. And what about as regards the borders of the EU? What's the the history there? It's a really interesting turnaround for France because in the past it tended to view enlargement with a lot of scepticism. It saw it as a way of undermining what was its core political objective, and that is a deepening of a political project for Europe. This used to create tensions between London and Paris when Britain was still a member of the European Union before Brexit, because Paris always suspected that the UK wanted to turn Europe into a mere trading zone. 
And that is absolutely contrary to the sort of deepening of the European Union that France has always wanted to achieve. And in 2019, France actually vetoed the opening of formal membership talks with Albania and North Macedonia. And so now it seems in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that France, that Mr. Macron, are, are changing their tune. I think this has really been a transformation of France's attitude to what you might think of as the sort of borders between the eastern of the European Union and Russia. France, I think, no longer accepts the idea that there needs to be or can be a sort of grey zone or a buffer between the two. And instead of worrying about Russia's future security, what it's concerned about is bringing Ukraine in both to NATO and to the European Union as a way of making sure that the European Union borders are firm, are clear, reach right to the eastern border of Ukraine and Moldova for that matter. This hasn't happened overnight. Last year, France worked hard on securing support for the EU's decision to give Ukraine European Union candidate status and then lifted its veto on the membership bids by Albania and North Macedonia. So you've seen this happen over a period of time. And at the NATO summit in Lithuania earlier this month, it was France that lined up alongside the UK and Poland and and even the Baltic states arguing for a fast track for Ukraine's membership of NATO. If you listen to what Macron's been saying in recent weeks, it's been pretty strong stuff. He made a speech in Slovakia when he said, we need a path towards membership for Ukraine of NATO. And he was also explicit about EU enlargement. He said that the question for us is not whether we should enlarge, but how we should do it. I think we have to build something between the security provided to Israel and a full-fledged membership. We need strong and concrete and tangible security guarantees. And we need a path towards at least this membership. So something concrete... I think you've seen an absolute transformation that has been little noticed, but is just as crucial for the future of Europe as Germany's Zeitenwender. And so do you get the sense that this is a a genuine reflection of a, a changed Macron, a changed France, or just simply responding to the heat of the war? Well, it's interesting because there is a lot of skepticism still, I think, in Central Eastern Europe particularly in the Baltic states, about whether Macron is really serious about this, whether this is strategic or just tactical. If you recall some of the comments he's made late last year and and even early this year about how he wanted to make sure that Russia was not crushed or humiliated, and those comments have reinforced that scepticism. But I think that it is actually strategic. I think that it reflects a reassessment of where Europe's own strategic interest lies. President Macron has always argued for a sort of greater European sovereignty, for reinforcing Europe's ability to determine its own future and to reinforce its own security. And I think what he's begun to argue, or implied at least in this change of strategy, is that enlarging the European Union is actually a way of reinforcing that sovereignty, not undermining it. And that, I think, is the key difference in the way in which France is arguing and talking about the future of Europe, its borders and of the European Union. And there's a particular worry, obviously, ahead of the American elections next year, that there will be less interest in supporting Europe and supporting Ukraine, and that therefore that question of European sovereignty and Europe's own ability to defend itself is going to become even more acute and the project for European enlargement even more important. But a change on the scale you describe is not going to be a quick one. 
Yes, of course. I mean, the membership talks take a long time because they involve making sure both that the European Union is ready and that the applicant countries that want to join are ready. And there's been negotiations ongoing with four Western Balkan countries, for example, that have been grindingly slow. Montenegro's negotiation talks began over a decade ago. So yes, you know, absorbing Ukraine would be complex, it would be long, it would be fraught. But the interesting thing, in my view, is that it's now viewed in Paris as a geopolitical imperative, not a choice. Now, France obviously can't alone dictate the choices of the club, but it remains a very strong and forceful guide to those decisions. So I think that its site and vendor or its own turning point could be just as crucial to determining the future shape of Europe. Sophie, thanks very much for your time. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jason. Thank you. Say you've got a car, not a new one, an old one, that you need to get rid of. How would that work? Maybe it'll be towed away and then taken to a dusty scrapyard where it'll be piled on a thick stack of other rusting jalopies. But like so many other things, disposing of old cars is changing. The industry is becoming more high-tech, more professional, and more efficient. Well, in the old days, if your car broke down and you wanted a spare part to replace it and you hadn't got a lot of money, off you go to a scrapyard. Paul Markilli is The Economist's innovation editor. I would often end up trying to negotiate with someone for a part and he'd sort of point somewhere down the back of this murky, dark place. I'd set off spanners in hand, avoiding the big guard dog chained up to a fence and remove the bit I wanted and save myself quite a bit of money. It was a bit of a backstreet, murky business, but times have changed. In what way? What's different now? Well, now you would probably not fix a car yourself because they're a bit of a headache anyway. So you'd take it to a garage. But that professional mechanic might suggest, well, I can get you a second-hand part for this and it would save a bit of money. And these days, with lots of supply chain glitches, you sometimes can't get hold of the bits to put a car back on the road. He would get that part not by going to a scrapyard directly, but indirectly through an online site like eBay. So instead of customers going and dismantling the cars in the scrapyard, the scrapyards themselves are doing it? They are, and they're getting very high-tech about it. I visited one called Charles Trent. They're based in Poole on Britain's south coast. Lots of cars coming in. Now, they've spent about £10 million on installing what they call a deproduction process. And the aim is to start dismantling about 100 end-of-life vehicles, as scrap cars are now called, every day. And the company is planning five more of these plants, meaning around 300,000 vehicles a year is their target. That's about a fifth of all the cars that are scrapped in Britain every year. And it sounds as if it takes quite a few people to deproduce a car. It does, and uh, a lot of specialist equipment as well, because what you see inside is the vehicles arrive and they're checked into a very elaborate computer system which oversees the whole process. And this lists all the valuable bits that the car contains. The car is then depolluted, as they say, with a team of technicians removing all the liquids, the oil and the air conditioning gases and things like that. And then the vehicles are sort of set onto these um, dollies that move along which is pretty much like uh, they would on a vehicle assembly line. And in fact, what they have there is very much the same equipment as a vehicle assembly line. 
But as it moves along, the technicians take the bits off as opposed to putting them on. So it's running in reverse, if you like. Now, these bits that come off are cleaned and sorted. Some things are sent for recycling, and eventually you end up with just the body shell. So this is used for material recycling, and that would be crushed in a giant crusher. This whole place is powered by solar energy, so it's quite an efficient process. Some parts, like engines and gearboxes, would be refurbished, which is a kind of remanufacturing them to make them as good as new. But Paul, all that sounds really involved. Is it really worthwhile to run this whole disassembly line? The modern scrapyards are recycling about 96% by weight of a scrapyard car. So there's a lot of value in these vehicles. And they also, by remanufacturing parts, they're only using about 15% as much energy as it is to make a new part. And carbon emissions amount to only about 30%. And the car makers are under pressure from legislators to increase their levels of recycling and look more to their carbon emissions. So this helps them do that. And so besides customers making savings, which eBay reckons can be up to 70%, the industry is also benefiting from the fact that these parts are there. And some car makers are moving into this business as well. And this discussion has been largely, I guess, about fossil fuel-powered cars. Does this same business translate to the eventual ends of lives of electric vehicles? Well, they're getting some electric cars in, but EVs do present a challenge. I mean, one of the issues is the battery, and the battery is the most valuable part in an EV. But if it's damaged or even if it's recharged, you have to be very careful because they can explode into flame. And there can be voltages left lingering in the electronics. So you need some very specialist technicians to deal with electric vehicles. Hence, these scrapyards are are having to employ some quite highly qualified people. But often what goes wrong in a battery is just one of the cells. If you could replace that little module, you could probably put the battery back together again and uh, offer it as a second-hand one that would be capable of providing many more years of useful life. So some of the uh, high-tech scrapyards are looking at refurbishing the batteries in EVs and offering them for sale. So what it really boils down to, if there's a way of making money out of taking these things apart, you can be sure the scrap kings are going to do it. Paul, thanks very much for your time. That's a pleasure. for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got going on at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualization, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. 
And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.